0: Ooh, deep breath. Okay, here we are. Hi. This is the first official episode of this plus that. And my name is Brandy. And here here we are. It's so it's so hard to it's so hard to believe that we're here. Um I wanted to start my first episode. Uh, differently than I'll do any episode. And not just because it'll be only me talking and not in an interview with someone, but sort of rough cut. I I have zero, uh, script for this. Uh, and also I just felt like it was important to lay a foundation that described why this project matters to me. You know the description of this plus that as a show is uh that it's about connecting the seemingly unconnectable and why that matters and so this is why it matters to me and yeah i i have no script planned to give you context i'm sitting in my house where i typically record interviews with folks And yeah, it's a, I think it's a Tuesday morning and I'm only a couple weeks out from, I think, so I'm, oh, I'm exactly one week out from releasing the trailer and I'm then, it means two, uh, three weeks out from launching the podcast initial episodes. And, um, Yeah. I, I've been working on this thing for, I think around six, six, somewhere between six to eight months. And so it feels like this is actually the, the last, the very last thing I'm recording. Also, I feel like that's important to say. It's the last thing I'm recording. You know, all of my launch interviews are recorded. The trailer is recorded and even the pieces that I'll include later in this episode are recorded. So this intro is the last thing that I'm going to record before really everything goes to an audio team to process the episodes and then they get published online. So that feels fitting that this is the the last thing I'm doing to really sort of get all of that done and then take a step back and in this moment with you and say, here's what this experience has been like and how I wound up here and why this is so important to me. And, you know, it's <laughs> I'm also saving this for last cause it's, it's the hardest thing to do is to summarize what a wild ride this has been. You know, I, I had been telling my friend Kyle that, you know, I feel so amazed cause You know, and I'll tell a bit of more of this story in a second, but I feel amazed because it sort of felt like the idea for this show kind of just dropped into me, you know, like you always hear about authors or creators of different types who say like, you know, like working with the muse or folks who are like very spiritually inclined as I tend to be that you know, it was like some sort of source just dropped it into you. And if you weren't there to receive it and create the thing, then it would have moved on to someone else, you know? So in that sense, it feels like it really isn't mine. I just feel um, like I've been entrusted with something that, um, you know, I I, and and that I also try to take a posture on things that like, I'm not the owner of anything. I just want to be a joyful conduit. And so I just, I feel like I, you know, in telling that story to Kyle, I was just going, I wasn't like sitting down going, I want to create a podcast. What would that podcast be? I was out on a walk one day and I I think I had just taken a step back in a period of time to think about like what really brings me joy and to be really acting on those things. And And so uh, all of a sudden, I just remember being out and the idea, it it felt like it fell into me and Kyle's response was great, which was that, you know, like, sure, yes. And also you've been working on it for your entire life, you know, and, and I, I want to tell a bit of story of how I wound up here and especially in this last year and a half. Um, because I think, I think it explains some of that, the, the sort of I think this feeling that I have right now, which is that sometimes you have to be ready for the thing to happen. And that just requires so much internal personal work and experience and all kinds of things. So, um, I I guess I want to tell a story of, yeah, like I said, just sort of my last year and a half and just a larger context of what my experience of being a person who wants to create things and and do things of meaning in my life, which is that uh, I I feel like someone who has spent a lot of their life. And and I talk about this in some of my early interviews. I I feel like someone who spent a lot of my life feeling like number one, I, I don't really do work that I don't care about. You know, I invest pretty heavily into anything that I do but I also, I don't know, I get kind of bored easily after I've sort of learned what I I feel like I came to learn in any particular role. And yeah, I don't know. I guess the easy way to say it is that like traditional jobs haven't really ever worked for me. And so for a lot of my life, I've been either quickly in and out of jobs or I've been a freelancer or a contractor and working on my own for a lot of my life. And the other part is that I feel like there was just something more that I had to give. You know, I spent, um, I've been doing branding and marketing and communications work and storytelling and concept and strategy and all of those things for about 17 years. And it, it, again, you'll hear me say this in some early interviews, but it it was like the way that I knew how to sort of get at what felt like actually like us. It was like, uh, to me, though, those can feel like really um, just sort of surface level or shallow pursuits. I think for me, there was something in branding in particular that felt like, a sacred act of helping to uncover someone's identity and core gifts and their values in the world. And then how that might be lived out in the material world. And so there was something deeper for that about me, but still I've really just not enjoyed the work for truly like a decade and just always had this feeling that there surely I could not be here to To just help other people define who they are and,, um, you know, uh, just to do branding and marketing, I just didn't feel like that was really living out some sense of why I might be here. And, you know, discussions of purpose are a whole thing, but I guess, yeah, I'd, I've just spent sort of a lot of my life feeling this like deep voice that kept going, like brandy, there's more. And that, that if you don't get to that before you die, that you, you will deeply regret it. Like you will not have lived something out that was necessary for you and maybe even for others, hopefully. And, and so there's, there's just this sort of constant dread that I wasn't, actually acting on that but anytime as like a person who felt kind of creative or that like the the calling toward that sort of purpose had some sort of creative bent toward it whether it was drawing or writing or whatever the case may be that uh, that like I didn't know what it was, you know, I just didn't have any particular direction. So every time I tried to do creative work, it felt like I was just staring at this massive life-size blank canvas. And I had no idea where to start, you know, because it was like, given every option, I can do anything. And that felt too big. And I had no idea how to start tackling it. And so I guess that's a short way of saying that, like, it, it led me to, you know, an early 2000, 20, I left a job that I'd been sort of in various capacities at for about three years. And I felt like maybe I'd try and start a business that would like allow me to utilize all the gifts and talents and skills that I had to offer after 17 years of working in branding and marketing and try and create something that might actually, you know, I always told my friend Jonathan that what I think I was trying to envision was a way that I could use my nearly 20 years of skills to then work as little as possible so that I could buy back the rest of my life, that like I would have some sort of time freedom if I could just sacrifice a little bit of my life in order to do the work I really cared about. So there was this like gambit I was playing with the universe that was going, okay, well, if I can set up a business where I can only give away two days of my life or three days of my life to do work that I really don't care for, but that does offer some sort of valuable service to the world and that would utilize, you know, again like these 20 years of skills so that then in the other portion of my life I could actually live <laughs> like I meant it that maybe that bargain would be worth it. And so I spent during, you know, early pandemic and, you know, the the remaining year or so, year in change um trying to build that business and i exhausted myself and you know it was like i kept finding myself doing all the back end stuff to set up a business because i'm really good at like operational things and so i yeah i i would find myself doing stuff that wasn't public and every time i i needed to actually be public so that i could actually start getting clients and you know being successful which i was I was 150% positive that I could make that thing real. And then I could actually make quite a bit of money that might give me more resources to be more generous, to improve my health and, you know, do all of these things that, that felt like having that, that sort of resource flow would give to me again, as long as I could trade in a little bit of my week in order to do it. And, and then January of this year rolled around 2021. And I was really at a point where the business was built, I needed to actually start getting clients and putting work out and being public with what I was doing. And I was I found myself on so many phone calls with friends, almost just like internally, hoping and praying that they would tell me like, Brandy, this clearly isn't what you want to do. Please stop. Cause I would just be sobbing and I would be like, I don't know if this is the thing. And here's, here's why I think it might not be the thing. And gracious as my friends are, you know, I think they tend to be like therapists. They're, they're there to listen and not give me answers. And so I, I sort of just continued to stumble and really the sort of defining moment I had was I think it was in February of this year. Again, 2021 I was in, in my bathtub and I had sort of this like quintessential moment that I feel like a screenwriter would have written into a scene where they were trying to talk about a panic attack, but I was having a full blown panic attack in my bathtub, sobbing and just like shaking. It was the worst panic attack I can remember ever having. And, you know, I remember a couple of things and one was just like, I I have no idea what to do. I've just wasted all this time and money trying to start this thing. And I think I'm going to just ditch it. But also this like remembrance of something I heard from Elizabeth Gilbert at some point, that was, you know, her sort of saying, sometimes you don't have to know what next is. You just have to, like, you just have to know not this, like not this is enough to be able to take the next step. And and that's all I knew. And so, uh, in the following days and months or weeks or what have you, I shut down the business. I closed down the trade name. I, um, and it was a, I didn't say this, but it was a marketing advice business was what I was doing. Uh, so you could call me and get marketing advice without having to hire an agency. And, yeah, so I, I shut it down. I emailed my email list, the small one that I had built so far, and I closed it down and I took a few weeks off, thankfully, because I, um, I was sort of taking advantage of the unemployment I had been given thanks to the pandemic. And I, I just spent some time recovering and just asking myself like, okay, Brandy, you've been doing this whole cycle of continuing to take the safe choice and do branding and marketing, whether it's for yourself or doing it for a company. That perhaps maybe will give you health insurance or, you know, something else that makes you feel more safe and cared for in the world. And it it just feels like it's time. And and I'm sure part of that was actually spurred on by the pandemic. That I just wasn't able to suffer doing bullshit with my life anymore. And so. Yeah. I, all I know how to say is that I started, um, you know, doing stuff that I felt like might bring me joy. I'd be listening to podcasts. I, um, I don't know. I honestly don't even remember this particular period of time and what I was doing, but I, again, I do remember one day in this, in this space of having taken a step back, going out on a walk in my neighborhood and this idea for this plus that coming to me and my whole body like it is right now, literally, I have goosebumps all over me. I broke out into goosebumps and it, I'm, I'm starting to realize that like when I operate out of a place of, um, true alignment that I feel in my body, a pull in my stomach, like I'm just being pulled and compelled towards something rather than making decisions out of my anxiety and fear, which usually happens for me, like in my chest or my head. And that's what happened. I felt this like deep sense of pull toward this. And so then I I started a process of learning what it was to create a podcast and what equipment you needed and how I would define the show, what I would call the show, um, you know, all the logistical things that you need to get together in order to, to actually do this. And then I got there and then I started inviting guests on and, and you know here we are and and that's that's a really simplistic way to to sort of tap you into where i'm at sitting in this chair talking to you today but i i think the only other things i would say is like some some stuff i i feel like it's hard to like actually encounter your true work in the world and this like creative act of doing whatever that is without shit getting really mystical. (laughs) Like, I mean, you have to do, yeah, there's just so much like mental work you have to do. There's so much like emotional, spiritual, what, you know, like all of these different things that I feel like you sort of have to tread your way through in order to feel ready, like really ready to finally do something that you care about and also know and hold lightly that like, you never know if it's going to be forever or if maybe I just launch these first episodes. I keep telling my therapist that if I only launch these first episodes, I will feel so proud to have done the work to put them together. But I believe that this will go far beyond that. I really hope it will because in doing all of this work toward that moment, you know, between that moment when I decided or I got the idea. And today sitting in this chair, um, like there's just been so many moments of affirmation that I just feel like, again, this sort of goes back to what Kyle was saying. It's like this insane sense that I was made to do this. Like every relationship, every heartbreak, every job I took that I hated, Every job I took that I loved, every moment of feeling isolated and alone and not sure what I was supposed to do in my life or if I had any real community, all all of it, it was like all of it made me ready for this moment. And that feels so big to contend with. Like I said, it's like it forces you into this like really mystical place of like realizing that it actually has nothing to do with you and that you really are in this kind of hyper spiritual space of just going whatever you want to say, whatever needs to be said universe, like I'm here to have that continue to sort of flow through me and drop into me so that I might share it. And so that hopefully someone hears it and resonates with it and goes like, you know, partially in addition to what you'll hear in a second in terms of some other like why behind the show that like I just I really believe that you probably have a thing like this too, and that maybe you have also had a similar experience of feeling like the work that we're asked to do in the world has such little significance so often, and and so often serves mostly just to feed the pockets of other people and drain our life force, you know, and I just have this like real sense of purpose in part, also in doing this around hoping that there's something that you hear in this that helps you to go. And and also in my newsletter, like I do a lot of writing, I think on this because I feel so passionate about it recently in terms of our relationship with work, um, that you feel liberated that like the universe actually wants you to thrive and that when you take the steps toward doing something like this in your life, that magic, wild, unexpected, synchronous things show up in your life that actually help you take steps toward it. And the more you do that, the bigger steps you can take. And, the, and you know, it just sort of snowballs from there. And there's something I read every morning to myself that was some stuff that I read... Um, I read in a book called Sacred Economics from Charles Eisenstein, you know, he talks a lot about work and purpose and, and I, I wrote some of that stuff down cause I read it to myself every morning because it was something that inspired me to start taking steps in this journey. And so I wanted to read it to you. And, uh, so I, it starts by saying the one who bows into service is an artist to see work as sacred is to bow in service to it and thus become its instrument. More specifically and somewhat paradoxically, we become the instrument of that which we create. And then at another part in the book, he says, in right livelihood, then I suggest that we look at the world with eyes of what opportunity is there to give and how may I best give of my gifts. Hold that intention in mind and unexpected opportunities arise. Quickly, any situation in which you are not giving your life gifts towards something that is good to you becomes intolerable. And then I'm going to pull it off the desk. So you might hear that. So there's this other post-it note I have that I, I did. Uh, I worked through The artist Way from Julia Cameron for the first time in the last several months. And there's a quote I have that I also read after that every morning that says, The universe falls in with worthy plans and most especially with festive and expansive ones. I have seldom conceived a delicious plan without being given the means to accomplish it. Understand that the what must come before the how. First choose what you would do. And the how usually falls in place itself. And that's sort of what I mean. I feel like I've spent a lifetime just wondering actually what the what was. And and it was like, it took all of that time to feel, to be ready to actually, I guess, like have the universe show me what that was. And that in that waiting, it's like it made all of the work to get there worth it. And that that part is so overwhelming to me. It's like, I can't think about it without just sobbing. (laughs) Um, But I find it to so far have been so true that as soon as I decided what the what was, it was like the universe um, gave me the how. And, And back to those Charles Eisenstein quotes about, you know, service and gifts and using your skills and becoming the instrument of that, which you create. And, and I feel that to be so true that especially in this experience that like what we do, I feel like ends up actually sort of spiritually and even physically at a bio- biological level starts to make up the DNA of who we are. And, and I think that says so much about what makes us sick, what, what makes us healthy what makes us thrive, you know, what we're choosing to engage in, in our work. And, and I, I have so much, I think, too, that I've learned around how much choice we actually have, even in the midst of capitalism and all of these systems that make us, I think, believe and and truly not just believe, like there's sort of a double-edged sword here that's like, I think we both sometimes play victim to systems and also those systems are really real, right? So there are real, practical choices that we have to make when it comes to work. But there's also a way that we, I think, sort of too often give away our power to these systems. And so, yeah, this, this for me, why it, why I'm doing it is because it feels like this is what I'm here to gift. And in that giving, it, it's not only feeding and nourishing me, but I hope that in some way it feeds and nourishes you also. And, and hopefully in some way serves to wriggle you free in the same ways that it has helped to wriggle me free. And there's this other quote I have sitting in front of me too that I, f- I find relevant to this, which is that people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. What you, what you do simply proves what you believe, communicate from the inside out. And I don't remember the source of that, but, um, this for me feels like the very first time in my life, I'm communicating something deeply from the inside out that took all of this time and all of this work, not just in these last several months since having the idea, but truly my entire life to be able to come to you and say, this is who I am and, and to be ready to to allow myself out into the public in that way. So yeah, I, I think that really covers a lot of the how and some of the why also. Here, I'm going to shift in my chair. <laughs> my feet are falling asleep. So yeah, that covers that part. And and now I want to give you an also unscripted, uh, I think getting at uh, other sort of um parallel or complementary reasons as to why this is important to me personally. And so, I'm going to include two things in the rest of this episode. And the f- the first one you're going to hear is a conversation that I was having with you, but recorded without script on my phone into my like Apple headphones while I was walking around my neighborhood. One day, several weeks ago, and I felt sort of this moment of inspiration and clarity around why I was doing this and what, what why it was important to me. And yeah, so you'll hear all of the neighborhood noise. You're going to hear the like ruffling of the mic on my headphones or you know on my clothes and all of those things. It's going to be completely rough, but and, and, you know, and it doesn't end cleanly. You're even going to hear me sort of talking to myself like, "Hey, Brandy, I think you can sort of end in this way once you re-record this." But I never re-recorded it. I'm just doing this on the fly and believing that whatever is meant to come out of me in this is going to come out. And so it it doesn't end cleanly, but you're going to get that sort of full rough cut of some reasons why this is important to me. And then I'm also going to include after that, and I might dip back in between those just to make sure you understand the sort of when the transition happens, but I'm going to include this conversation that I had with my friend, Kyle's sister, Lauren, Lauren Buckley, um where it was not long after we had first met and i watched a video that she did with charles eisenstein cuz they know each other it's how i was introduced to charles and his work um called metaphysics and mystery and i'll link to it in the show notes here for this uh, this first episode and i watched the first hour of whatever the sort of intro to that course was where it's Lauren sort of coming on screen and saying like, here I am. I have a chance to talk to someone who maybe has some insight into the purpose of why we're here in the world and what, what it's all about. And or, you know her personal sort of story of what it's like to be someone who has always asked these really deep questions about what it is to be here and what it means to be human, and never feeling really satisfied by either science or religion, and you know still still continuing to ask those questions. And I I heard that, and then I heard Charles's response, and it was so it lit up all of these things in me that I had been pursuing and really questioning again, not just recently in these last few years, but also I feel like all of my life, I resonated so deeply with it and I'm positive many of you will too. Um, and so what I'm going to include is this sort of wild, uh, again, unscripted conversation that I record from myself and send to Lauren. And I think while maybe not all of it will feel relevant, and, and also a little bit vulnerable cause I'm I'm just like, I'm not expecting to be public with that conversation at all. Um, so you know, it might reveal more or I say more ums all over the place or, or whatever that might be. Uh, I just feel like there are, there are things in it that are really useful to also get at some of why this is so important to me. So we're almost at 30 minutes here. So I'm going to go ahead and yeah, uh, start you off with, or not start you off. (laughs) We've already been going for half an hour, but I'm going to give you those two pieces of audio and yeah. So here's the first one where again, I'm just walking around in my neighborhood and, um, knowing that I'm basically thinking about talking to you directly and saying, listener, this is why this matters to me. So here it is. I feel like maybe the best place to start is to tell you the bio in my Instagram profile, my personal one, which says, I'm in love with the space between things, the intersections and the paradox, Paradox paradoxes. That's probably you. And the reason I'm so obsessed with paradoxes is because I am one. And like I said, you probably are too. And I find it far easier to be in love with your paradox than I do with my own. So in some ways, this is an experiment to reconcile or to unreconcile, to stop trying to reconcile all of my paradoxes and contradictions and to create a place where they can be held. And beyond that, to see the utter beauty at the intersection of seemingly contradictory things. You know, 3 years ago, I I had been listening to people really start to talk about quantum physics like quantum physics was making sort of a more mainstream conversation and I was in my kitchen and I was listening to a podcast another round which was one of my favorite podcasts of all time and I just remember I was cutting food getting a meal ready and I another round was interviewing a NASA pilot and there was something in the middle of cutting that made me stop and think why did i never think about becoming an astronaut which every time when i say that out loud people laugh right it sounds like a joke and at the time i think i was 35 or 36 so it, it kind of did feel like a joke to consider becoming an astronaut at my age but i was mostly just curious as to why I hadn't ever thought about it before. And I started to recall all these things about, you know, in my family, my dad and I, you know, my dad is a musician. I was more of like an artist and a writer. And my, the the other members of our family, my dad's brother, my uncle, had graduated from Princeton. He's a professor now at a school in California at a university. And his wife, my aunt, uh, you know, is a double doctorate in Slavic languages and philosophy. And my uncle and my dad, their father, my grandfather, was a biochemical engineer and worked for Texaco in Texas. And His wife, my grandmother, was a teacher in Tulsa. And so there's all these, you know, very intelligent, academic leaning people who looked at us and there's this running story in our family that my dad and I were the creative side of the family. And so I think that paired with the fact that math and science classes were always my hardest classes made me believe that being an astronaut or doing science wasn't a field that was open to me. And when I started falling in love with quantum physics and the idea that quantum physics completely contradicts everything that we know about the universe at a large scale and yet both are entirely true. I just, it was like the metaphor spoke to something in me about how to hold two things in myself that seem to contradict each other as true and also beautiful. And, you know, I, saw, I started to see at the time, too, in my personal life that there was all this stuff going on in queer community for me. So I'm, I'm queer, I'm a cis, white, uh, female-bodied, queer, femme of center <laughs> person in the world. And I'd been hanging out in queer community and community organizing for years. And I started just to see the ways that we couldn't hold uh, conflict or difficult conversations. And the way that so many of us had been people who had left sacred traditions of some kind, some sort of faith traditions, because there were places that we weren't welcome. And in a move out of those home sacred communities that we created these new communities that we thought were safe, but it turns out actually were just new religions that kept some people in and other people out. And at some point, something broke enough in me, that I stepped away, in a lot of ways, from faith communities, queer community, organizing culture, and so much of it, because not only was I constantly angry, but I I just didn't enjoy who I was. I didn't like who I was becoming, and I, I didn't know, I couldn't articulate at the time what was going on, but I knew, I knew one thing, really. All I remember is thinking, I have to find a way to fall back in love with the world, which I think probably really at its core was about falling in love with myself for the first time ever. And knowing to some degree that the ability to hold contradiction and find creative connections between seemingly disparate things in community at a larger scale was actually never going to take place for me. If I didn't first and foremost do it in myself, that I had to find a way to hold those contradictions in myself so that I could show up in community in a way that was able to not just hold those contradictions, but maybe even sometimes, well, yeah, I don't think it's about reconciling. I really do think it's about, right, because I think if we go back to the physics metaphor that... The large project of physics right now is to reconcile Newtonian and Einstein physics, quantum logic and, you know, um, and gravity and, you know, Newtonian physics. And it's interesting to me because I think while we race to find a unifying theory of life, that the deeper truth is actually that we've already found it, that the contradiction is the truth. And so in these conversations, I think what you hear me ultimately trying to do is to hold all the places that feel disparate in myself, to fall in love with those disparate, seemingly disparate things to question whether or not they're actually disparate in the first place, or if there is actually a beautiful, a beautiful picture of how they're actually more connected than we think. And that in that we might find more connection with each other. If we learn to hold those things within ourselves. And you'll also hear me then talking to people about how they have navigated finding a sense of belonging, not only in themselves, you know, primarily in themselves, but also in their careers and in their relationships and all the ways that they might have had to build a sense of self-belief in the midst of a world that tells them that they can only be one thing or only be one way, only behave or look or speak one way. When in truth, they are complex creatures who are profoundly curious about multiple ways of being. And that these conversations might open up windows into how we, we can all do that for ourselves and for each other collectively. And the insights that come when we look at two seemingly disparate disciplines, ideas, topics and go, what is the common thread between these things? But really, what is it that you're finding not only in connection between these seemingly disparate things, but why is it so important to think about things in this paradoxical way and to be able to hold that and explore a sense and maybe it's to gain a sense of comfort and being in that middle space that doesn't always feel clean, but is probably quite messy but the innovation and creativity and healing that can happen in that middle space. I think that's what I'm trying to do here. I think that's what I'm trying to do here. So, be an astronaut, plus an artist. Be a scientist, plus an artist. Be all the things, the seemingly disparate things along with me try on new curiosities find new connections as you hear people who are mashing ideas and topics and ways of being together so that hopefully we might break down some walls that we think are keeping us safe but are actually in fact keeping ourselves from being the most whole life-giving versions of who we are the most alive versions of who we are okay so here i am again in real time and i just wanted to drop in really quickly to again sort of give a little bit of context but um these next audio clips are the ones that i recorded directly to lauren buckley my friend and note that there's sort of one early clip that's just a few minutes long, and then there's going to be a second one. I got caught off in the first one, and I sort of explained what happened to Lauren, so you'll, you'll get it, but I, I wanted to give you that little bit of context. So first clip is a few minutes, and then I'll continue right after that with the second uh, and sort of full final piece of what I sent to Lauren. And yeah, let's go from there. Here it is. Okay. This is unplanned. So, uh, like I said, I'm going to do my best not to ramble. Um, but I'm going to start with, uh, the super personal, which I feel like is fitting. That's where you started in the video. Um, but, uh, yeah, I grew up in Dallas, uh, which, you know, some might argue is not the South, but uh in my worldview is for sure the South. Um, at least in the sense that I grew up in the heart of the Bible Belt. Um, and I did not actually grow up any in any particular like sect of Christianity, but it was definitely the era that we swam in. Um, uh, and had a pretty rough uh childhood uh with parental stuff. Um, that's a whole other thing. Um, but I wound up in religion in late high school, uh, because I found people who were dynamic and amazing and beautiful humans. Uh, and it felt different than anything I'd experienced. Uh, And so I started doing this whole church thing and uh, I went to an undergrad school that was faith-based, all of it Christian, of course. And as soon as I got there, I was super disappointed in the actual state of the humans that were there. Uh, Not the state, but like, I don't know, quality. (laughs) Um, Basically, the religion I knew was not what I had been told and, you know, like how it was being practiced in front of me, I guess is what I mean. Anyway, um, there's a lot in between that and my sort of mid to late twenties where, uh, religion really started unraveling for me. A lot of that had to do with like queer identity and what that meant in the story of church for me. Um, but, uh, there's a part I love about uh what Charles was saying just in general that's also that um science as a religion also doesn't um tend to recognize the um like the lived experience doesn't match with what the the logic and the science is saying and that is uh a hundred percent one my complaint with science also um maybe coming from a different place but winding up in that same sort of uh feeling about it but um, was a hundred percent my experience with uh, religion that um, the the dogma or whatever that I'd been taught just like didn't actually uh, align with my personal experience it felt my personal experience felt way more also dynamic and mysterious and um, like unexplainable in a hundred different ways. And then later when I went to grad school and uh, studied uh, human rights, basically, um, and started to really dig into power and privilege stuff. uh, I also saw that uh, science or religion, neither really seemed to honor a bunch of um, more ancient spiritual traditions or like Charles said, uh, more like, uh, like indigenous knowledge, folk knowledge, that sort of thing. So anyway, um, love that piece. And, um, oh my God, I have like a hundred things to say. I'm never going to be able to wrap this in a short way. We just need more hang time. Um, okay, quickly, what do I want to hit on? Um, one thing about questions that I feel super uh, excited to just hang out with you more for is... Okay, I'm very annoyed. Uh, I have a timer set on my phone that uh, at nine o'clock stops me from being able to access uh, a lot of my apps. And so it just totally cut me off (laughs) right after that. And I talked for like six more minutes. Um, Okay, Um, here's where I was going. I said something about, uh, so I was going into questions and um, I talked about... um, This guy who I started following at some point in 2006, 2007, I read his first book on a trip to Rwanda. um, And um, he, in a lot of ways, has served as a kind of guru for me, also not really believing in gurus. Um, But uh, he he was saying things that felt like they were actually giving voice and expression to stuff that I'd been experiencing, which was mainly that like the religion that I'd been given didn't really match, uh, with my personal experience anymore. And so anyway, the very first book or the very first chapter of his very first book is a chapter called questions. Um, and I loved him ever since, but, um, there's a analogy he uses in that chapter that says something like, how um, a lot of people think of faith as a brick wall that you build up, and you know, sort of each piece of your dogma is one of those bricks, and it's really dangerous if you start if you like remove any one of them because like it threatens the whole thing, uh, like it threatens that the whole thing will come tumbling down. And he was like, faith though really should be more like a trampoline that you invite others onto to jump and it's bending and flexing. And you're, you know, like all the good things that sort of come with a trampoline that are much more like an open invitation than a set of, um, dogma. So anyway, I thought you might enjoy that. Um, shit. Okay. What did, uh, where did I go next? Um, I think where I went to was basically just reading. So back in, I run a monthly newsletter. It's called Mixed Media. Um, And back in 2000, it it goes out once a month. Back in 2019 and November, uh, so not that long ago, um, I wrote a... um, So each one of them has an opening essay, and I wrote one that I'm going to read to you because your eyeballs hate reading. Um, So I'm just going to give it to your ears. Uh, Hopefully it's not too long. And uh, yeah, here's what it says. Um, It's called Scientific Faith versus Scientific Religion. I have been sitting with his opening line and a Ted Chang interview. Oh, I, this is where I stopped before too, <laughs> is uh, note that obviously this came, uh, months before I met you guys, uh, and we watched Arrival together and clearly I just talk about Arrival constantly. <laughs> so here we are, um, says I've been sitting with his opening line and a Ted Chang interview from 2002 since reading it last week, quote, all science fiction is fundamentally post religious literature. For those whose minds are shaped by science and technology, the universe is fundamentally knowable. Faith dissolves, replaced by a sense of wonder at the complexity of creation, uh, unquote. What total trash? That was my sincere first response. In Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall Kimmerer makes a point I think is essential. Quote, it is important to separate two ideas that are often synonymous in the mind of the public, the practice of science and the scientific worldview that it feeds. She goes on to explain, "The practice of science brings the questioner into an unparalleled intimacy with nature, fraught with wonder and creativity as we try to comprehend the mysteries of the more than human world." Unquote. Here's the sentence I really want to highlight though. Quote, "Trying to understand the life of another being or another system so unlike our own is often humbling and for many scientists is a deeply spiritual pursuit." In contrast, the scientific worldview is one she claims uses science and technology to reinforce reductionist, materialist, economic, and political agendas. Item number one, then, the practice of science is a faith. Faith doesn't dissolve with science. It is enlivened by it. Questions lead to more questions. Awe is magnified. People are invited in. Curiosity and risk are encouraged. Magic and myth and math and mystery and poetry and paradox are all welcome. Quantum physics and the theory of relativity can both be true and yet fundamentally opposed. Item number two, however, the scientific worldview is a religion. Religious scholar Reza Aslan understands religion as, quote, the Uh, First and foremost, a matter of identity, not a matter of beliefs and practices, unquote. And identity structures are primarily concerned with creating clubs, places where people are allowed and others are not. And because they are primarily concerned with who is in and who is out, religions are very concerned with matters of black and white. Religions believe that all things are knowable, that if you just follow a set of rules, whether dogma or the scientific method, you can conquer doubt. You were this and not that, never two things at once. In religion, anything queer is highly uncomfortable. Disruptors are silenced, questions are squelched, and awe and wonder are suffocated. Science fiction, then, is actually a supreme act of faith, Imagining that the world might one day look differently than it does today is a creative, explosive, dangerous endeavor. It is extremely vulnerable and full of contradictions. And I'm taking real liberties here. But Ted Chiang, the author of Stories of Your Life, which inspired the movie Arrival, strikes me as a dude that believes in faith. A person who understands that even science is often sloppy. As Dr. Banks says in the movie quote, we need to understand the difference between a weapon and a tool. Language can be messy and sometimes one can be both, unquote. Given this, let us not forget that science is a tool. The point is not to know everything. The point is the joy we feel in pursuing the questions. So that's what I wrote back in 2019. That sounds like it was a long time ago. That's what I wrote back in November. (laughs) Um, And... Okay. I'm going to wrap this up soon. Uh, the, I I just like, I I hope that you read stuff that is not just articles on the internet because you have to read a book if you've not heard of it called matter and desire and erotic ecology by Andreas Weber. Um, it has such a scandalous title, but I read it about two years ago and nearly the entire thing is underlined. And I kept telling people that it was essentially my new Bible. Um, and, I If I were going to explain anything about what it talks about in terms of an erotic ecology, it's all about more life. Like the entire thing is sort of a theology of going this whole thing is about creating more and more life, which really is what uh, Charles spent the majority of his time talking about. Um, Excuse me. So what's the only quote I'll say? Um, Okay, I'll just read a piece. Um, Okay, so mystics such as Richard Rohr call such an attitude quote, non-dual thinking, thinking that tries to connect with what is not by neutralizing opposites, but by gaining more reality from them. This path leads from a knowledge of the world to a practice of increasing, protecting and partaking in its aliveness. Like an ecosystem, this path contains the simultaneity, simultaneity of lightness and darkness without censoring either. Richard Rohr calls this practicing heaven. Now heaven. Now this is a uh, heaven now. This is not the nirvana that politicians, esoteric thinkers, and technocrats all fantasize about. This is reality in all of its beautiful complications. And then he like goes on to talk about also, I love that this is the part I'm bringing up because he talks about Christopher Alexander, who's an architect, uh, architect who, um, if you don't know, like, um, created like pattern language for architecture and, um, and believed in stuff like uh, buildings being more or less alive than each other, like actual materials like bricks or concrete or whatever have more or less life in them. Anyway, so he talks about that. Um, he says something like, "The okay, so he says the British architect and author Christopher Alexander thinks that all forms of aesthetic beauty are really nothing other than various solutions to bringing the un- unavoidable unavoidable, I can't read anymore, the unavoidable tension within the process of being alive into dynamic equilibrium. Um, but anyway, okay. So like two years ago I read this book and it like completely changes the like underlying philosophy. I feel like I operate in, in my entire life, which is exactly what Charles was saying. Like once this sort of comes to you, like, what does that mean for how you engage with the world then? And I, um, I have a board above my desk that says, um, a quote from the book, which is a relationship is successful when it increases the alivenesses um, of all. And also quote, anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. And uh, so about the same time, I had like all these health concerns and um, it that's what actually led me into fermentation. And what I loved about fermentation was that it was basically a food philosophy that sits that like sat completely on top of this, if we're going to use what Charles was saying, like a story that I believed in and which was that when you bring these things together, they actually, um, create more life than when they were separate. So like you take filtered water, salt, and then usually some kind of vegetable, sometimes a fruit, um, you bring those together and uh, individually they're great, but like together they, they're they actually more nourishing. So like Charles was sort of trying to find this like very practical way of talking about what it meant, like to your question about like what it means for the universe or the planet or whatever, or for us to like, uh, for there to be more aliveness or for us to bring more aliveness. And fermentation was like the way that I actually saw a very practical application of going like, not only is this food have more life, but when I eat it, it's actually, it has broken down its components and like the microbes and the more life that are in it actually bring me, my body, more nourishment. And that is like scientifically provable. Uh, so um, anyway, I yeah, like I said, I have a million other things to say. Uh, I'm just going to end this really long recording, which is now at almost 15 minutes. Um, with that, probably uh, you have to read this book. It talks about beauty and like also all these things that Charles was saying, which also became I have like a whole other story around that. Like I've spent years in community organizing. And it got so toxic to me at some point I had to like eject myself because I was like, oh, this worldview like really doesn't also sit with me. I'm just like constantly angry. Everybody's like cutting each other out. If you make any one individual fuck up, like there's no room for curiosity and failure or screwing up in any way, shape or form, even if it's not like traumatic. Um, And uh, when I did that ejection, I was... I was coming into a space of going like, I actually need to fall back in love with the world. And beauty is how I'm going to do that, which is how I started like drawing flowers, which I've done like a huge mural of, and like all these other things that I like started practicing beauty for. But um, yeah, I don't know. I love that piece where he, Charles talks about like the accountability that's there. Like there's a part in this book too. I, now I'm so rambling, but there's a part in the book because I had read this like not long after it's probably early 2017, not long after Trump was elected. And, um, I was just like freaking the fuck out. Like, we're all going to die, which today feels super relevant. Um, but, um, I, I like just couldn't contend with it. And, um, like, I didn't know what to do with that. And, uh, not long after that, I read, uh, art of the commonplace by, um, What's his name? Uh, Wendell Berry, which made me feel good about death as part of the cycle. Um, And then I read this book, Matter and Desire, and he was talking like it it articulated something for me that like I hadn't been able to articulate yet for myself, which is this feeling that like basically on the clock of the world, it feels a bit like humans because of climate change. Like we're at uh, we're not at like 6 p.m. Like we don't have tons of time left. Um, but we're also not at like five to midnight. So we can't just go like, fuck it all and build up credit card debt and just travel everywhere and, you know, screw everything. Cause we're about to die anyway. So we're this like really awkward, like what he calls about like 1115, um, before midnight. And, uh, you know, he says something about like, well, what do you do with that? Like, do you just like you know, throw your hands in the air. Cause you know, that, you know, we're going to die anyway. But like, he talks about going like, no, like sort of what Charles was saying, this, like this sense that when you sort of come into this story and believe that and really embody, uh, that like more life is sort of our purpose, then, um, you have this like responsibility to go like, then my job here is to create more and more life. And because I believe in more and more life and love at sort of the root of that as like the expression of that, then it means that like, I have to fight harder for the things that I believe deeply in. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Okay. Okay. That's all man. Oh yeah. I could talk forever. Um, okay. No, no. One last thing I'm going to say. I love that part where, you know, Charles is saying that like, not everybody has to ask these questions and, uh, that's okay. And maybe they ask them at different parts of their life, but like the important thing is that once you do sort of invite it in that, uh you wrestle with it and that's like part you know, like you engage in that process. And if you don't, it's at like, man, I need to go back and like actually write this down because I love the way that he said it, but something about like uh, it's at like the cost of your soul if you just like ignore it. And um, that I think is my like fundamental deep belief I think about who I've been in the world uh, anytime I feel like I, sort of veer away and like forget like these things that feel very intrinsic to me. And particularly this part about, I don't know, grappling with like, why are we here? And what does, what does all mean and why does it matter? sorts of things. Um, like, is central to who I am. And it feels really damaging to me anytime that I don't, um, surround myself with people that, um, at least allow it. I'm not saying that they have to like, (laughs) they have to like fully be there, but, um, I'm, I will say two things. One, it's part of why, and you know, maybe, 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 a month from now, you all think that I'm just the worst and, or maybe I think you're terrible, uh, two weeks from now, who knows, but for now it's been super fun to have you even, uh, third party toss these things, my direction and, uh, why I'm so excited to have met you and, uh, your brother and Robbie and Natalie and, um, all the people. And, um, yeah, I think, it feels really good to, you know, I think when I when I got rid of religion, you know, I think we a lot of us go through this process, maybe for you as science, that like I think you you get taught this this way of seeing in the world. And when it doesn't feel like it really fits um, you anymore, that it's really hard not to throw the whole thing away. And it's been really hard feeling like I was throwing that whole thing away because there's been the stuff that it feels like religion or faith. And these questions are like actually so central to who I am. And I so rarely talk about them because it's really difficult, especially to strangers like I'm doing to you right now over the phone, um, to talk about religion and faith, because like, if you don't know me, you don't know like the sort of complexities I hold around that. Um, but, um, yeah, I have always felt like it's really hard not to talk about often. Um, or to have spaces to talk about that because, and you know, I don't know for you, maybe that's science and the way that it sort of asks the same questions, but like not to feel like there's a space to actually talk about that is really frustrating um, because it does. It, it it has so often felt like I'm not like fully seen or heard or like I'm not showing up as my full self even if I'm taking like self accountability for that um, because like it is it is the thing that makes me feel alive. Um, so not really even just in my core, like my stomach and my intuition, like it literally feels like it animates everything about what I do in the world. Um, so yeah. Um, thanks for creating those spaces and I hope we get to hang out more. Okay. That's it. Now I'm at like a full, nearly 20 minutes plus the other video I sent you. I think that's sufficient. Okay. I hope we get to hang out soon. Maybe we should all just do a Skype chat. Okay. Bye. Okay. So there we are. There's as much context as I know how to give you in, you know, just over an hour of time about why this thing is so important to me and why I'm here giving it a go and hoping that you're along for the ride. And it, it doesn't really feel good to me in this first episode to like sell you on subscribing or signing up for my newsletter or whatever. So if you listen to future episodes, I'll give you more details on how to do those things and hope, <laughs> hope that you do them. But uh, this, this is really just about straight from my heart to your ears. And I hope that you hear that and maybe that something has resonated with you. Uh, so... I can't believe it (laughs) episode number one, uh, in the books. I, I can't wait for you to hear these first interviews that come next. They're some of the most meaningful things that I've ever done. And just, yeah, you'll hear me also say in a lot of them that I just never even imagined that conversations like this would be able to happen for me. So I feel so grateful to have made it here. I feel grateful that you're listening and like I say in the trailer, I think you're my people and I can't wait for you to hear what all of my guests have to say. I think I think you're hopefully going to feel like you're not alone, that that there are so many other people like you who need these things so and, and live their lives in, in these ways. So thank you for being here, new friend. You're listening to This Plus That, a new podcast about connecting the seemingly unconnectable and why it matters.